Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome back to Have a Little Insight. Ryan and I are here this week talking to Dylan Brentwood. Dylan is a performing artist, more specifically an actor. He has worked in a variety of film and television productions in Toronto and went holds a Bachelor of Fine Arts from Ryerson University. He is also currently training as a sommelier, which for those of you who don't know what that is, he is a wine expert, and he is also training to be a stunt performer. Dylan currently resides in Halifax, where he works in the hospitality industry as a bartender, and I have a feeling from what he said, also in a management capacity. Dylan sat down with us to talk about creativity, how it impacts his life, and how he brings it to a variety of the different forms of work that he does. Yeah, I thought the conversations with him were super interesting, and he gave us some of his thoughts on the current events with the Black Lives Matter protests that have been going on. And we also just touched on the idea of mixing his two worlds together of performing arts and restaurant culture to create a new space that can highlight both of those. There's a lot to take in, so hopefully you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the show, Dylan. It's great to have you on. I'm glad that we got to reconnect a couple weeks ago and we discussed having you on and it uh, seems like you've got some pretty interesting ideas for us. I am so excited to be talking to other human beings about anything that's going on in my head for the last few months. So yeah, it'd be great. One thing you mentioned to me before was being in a, a situation of pandemic and isolation is kind of difficult when you're someone that's very social and outgoing. So I'm curious as to what you've been doing to keep yourself sane. Luckily, I live with my wife, so there's been a lot of that. Um, I have definitely found it a struggle, though, and I find that now that I am able to see more people again and all the interactions that I have uh, stimulate an almost manic level of social like energy, uh, especially, again, working in like a restaurant culture. Uh, every time I see someone, I feel like I am just bombarding them with me, which I tend to do as a human being anyway. Um, but yeah, there's been a lot of social overload every chance that I've had. So I think it's taken like a lot more, given me a lot of chances to like, look at how I socialize with the characters of myself in my own head, I guess, um, just so I don't have to drive my wife insane. We've really been really great at, um, being six feet away from each other, but not necessarily being social so that we don't drive each other insane because we can both, you can, I can be a lot of human being to handle. So yeah, I think um, learning learning to find uh, learning to find social energy without genuine social energy, and part of it has been through like thoughtfulness towards other people, like maybe not necessarily directly connecting with other people, but just being mindful of what other people are probably going through and thinking during this period of time, and then sending smaller check-ins. Like I've had lots of very valuable conversations with lots of friends and i guess part of it has led to like this conversation now like we both had kind of had the thought to like reconnect in the world through just small checking in on other people so i think that is kind of an evidence of the time yeah it, uh, it gives us more opportunity to check in with people that maybe we haven't seen in a while because if you're not someone who is working from home and is busy because the pandemic has made things busier for you then you now have this time to, to reflect and think about these things and like little memories pop up and you're like, yeah, I wonder how they're doing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think there's been like a certain degree of uh, just like learning, learning the value of checking like a culture. Like there's a culture of like seeing how people are. And I think one thing that as someone who like lived in Toronto for eight years realized was like, I will see people that I lived near in Toronto as much now that I live you know, on the other side of the, or like, you know, four hours flight away, I will be in touch with them more now just because the challenge of not being able to physically see them. So there's one of those things where it's like, you all, you don't know what you got till it's gone. So I think people are learning now that like, oh, there's all these people and everyone wants to reconnect with them right away. So that, not quite sure my thoughts going on this, but like, <laughs> we're, we just are able to value the time to connect to other people a lot more and are actually putting in those efforts when before it would be like, oh, because I can, I won't. And now it's, I can't, so I will. And I think that's a really interesting, just like dichotomy of social needs. Do you think that part of that, for me, part of that has been tied into the fact that life has slowed down considerably 
And that's created more time to be able to also do that kind of outreach and stuff like that. I think so. I think, yes, life, it's weird because life has slowed down so considerably right now, but in some ways it has, as a result, escalated so much. Like if we were all had been going through the motions of regular busy work life, I don't know if anyone, people would have necessarily accomplished as much, like not even personal growth or personal uh, or like skill building, but as a result, time has just moved so quickly because we just weren't able to ground time in any concrete placement. So as a result, I think one thing that some people, I think some people may have gotten even like socially overwhelmed when this pandemic first started because we were learning all these skills of reaching out to others or making these conversations and these connections. And I think we're just learning that like, especially in a world where now we're relying on cell phone calls, text messages and Zoom conferences or Skype conferences or whatever, that there's so many idiosyncrasies of just sharing and occupying space with people that are hard to find in this current framework. So like the scheduling and experience of very concrete scheduled, we will have a Zoom call at one o'clock on such a day, make socialization kind of more challenging. I think that answers your question. Hmm. I think so. My brain is all over the place. It's uh, like I said, I'm back to work. So now I have no, I have, I have a schedule again, the days of the week started to matter. So it's very weird. I understand what you mean about the days of the week and how everything moved faster, even though time had slowed down. Cause I would consistently wake up and be like, what day is it? When did I take a shower? Am I supposed to do that today? I don't know yeah. what's going on anymore. Well, like one thing I had some friends experience was this idea of like, if I had any single thing to do in a day, I would never be able to do anything else. And I personally experienced that beforehand anyway. Like, oh, I have to work at three o'clock. My whole day is about having to work at three o'clock. Even if I woke up at eight in the morning and I had seven hours before that, I had to work at three. So that was my whole day. So now it's been like, I have a one hour Zoom call later. I can no longer do anything else today until I do that Zoom call. So there's this strange like, obsessive nature that I think people have kind of developed over mm. the tasks that just started to exist. And I think we've like kind of in, in some ways, I think some people would have like overscheduled themselves, even though they had no schedule, because part of us, some people realized that they needed scheduling or were told that like scheduling will help you feel normal about this. When I think that it was okay to accept that nothing about this was going to feel normal. <laughs> and I think that's been part of my process during the pandemic. And I sure other people can attest to it as well is at one point I was like, here is my whole day schedule from 9 a.m. until 9 p.m., six days a week. And that's what I did. I was like, I will wake up at 9, work out, have my breakfast, and then I will do a three-hour study session of whatever I've decided to study. And then I will go for a walk. And then I will come home and try to learn an instrument. And then I will watch TV. And then I will sleep and do it again. So, like, I think there was a chance to be – I mean, I'm just an obsessive human being. But we could kind of schedule ourselves into oblivion opposed to, like – Looking at like, here's some things I would like to get done in this period if I'm feeling okay with it. And that <laughs> kind of would have probably given us a sense of normalcy because nothing was normal. Therefore, we had to create a new normal. And I think that's been the biggest thing right now is like establishing what our new normal will be in this period so that we just like aren't trying to exist in a world that no longer is. Um, something you mentioned that I wanted to talk about because in our emails back and forth and a little bit of our talk is you've said that you have multiple different focuses and you've talked a lot about creativity and going different directions and just the way that you talked about your day, like I'm going to work out and then I'm going to learn whatever I'm learning and then I'm going to learn a musical instrument. Do you find it hard to balance all of those different components? One thing, one thing that I lean on a lot and I feel like everyone I know has heard me say this is that one point in my life when I was working um, very briefly with a landscaper, I met someone in like um, a soil yard who was talking about one of his coworkers. He said, there's two kinds of people in this world. There are people who work to live and people who live to work. What I realized about myself is that I am someone who lives to work, but I don't necessarily always care what that work is as long as I am externally motivated to accomplish something. So I think one thing that I've learned during this period and having so many diverse interests or like work stimulus is that it's not necessarily about the work itself or what I'm doing, but it's defining how I approach the work or more so like the creative energy that I generate towards the work I do. I've always been lucky to like work in creative fields. 
uh, like my training background is as an actor. Um, I have experience as like a contemporary new modern new age modern dancer. Uh, and then now I've turned a lot of my focus towards hospitality. And now a lot of my focus is thinking towards uh, administration. So what I've learned is I'm not necessarily defined by any one of those jobs. It's very okay to be defined by the jobs that you take a lot of pride in, but you also don't have to because people can be a lot more besides what their work is. So I'm realizing that what I lean towards is the idea of an archetype. So I would say that a lot of the work that I've done in my life goes towards the archetype of like facilitator or caregiver. Like I am someone who wants to take care of others or facilitate opportunities or events and experiences for others. So as an actor, you, you create that through either self-produced work where you get to generate experiences for others, or you consider the experience you generate for an audience. As a hospitality professional, it's about the idea of creating a cocktail or a dish or the way you structure courses or the way that you pair wine as part of that theatrical exploration, which gives someone an authentic experience. The thing that has drawn me towards focusing on that most recently has definitely been the organic nature of it and the very immediate high stress environment. I think the biggest thing that I've learned about all of the things that keep me motivated is as long as they're stressful, I'll enjoy them. And I think that's been the hardest thing right now is the only thing I've had to stress me out has been myself. So learning to be on top of that and realize that maybe it wasn't stress, but just high energy. So then realizing that my presence in the world was to create positive high energy. So when you talk about being creative and because a lot of what you do is about creating experience and dining, uh, performance is creating an experience or creating a character, creating like a world of make-believe. And you talked about taking that now into administration. When I think about administration, I think about somebody sitting at a desk and like pushing papers and doing work. I know there's lots of different kinds. Like how do you mm -hmm. picture bringing your creative energetic mindset into administration? I think in that case, it looks more at the idea of like the facilitator. So I've always thought about being the facilitator of the experience for others. So what I've looked at is in my past, I've produced live theater. Um, I owned, owned and operated a theater company in Toronto for three years. And at some points, you know, I wasn't necessarily the artist on the stage, but I was using creative ways of like sourcing funding or like providing solutions. So I like to think of a lot of what I do as like professional problem solver. And I will say that there's no one in the world who has faster reflexes than a bartender because we're so used to knocking things over and then immediately catching them. So that, and I have a lot of great stories about that, that like that kind of quick reflexive nature is part of what leads me towards administration. And especially like in the current social climate of the world, I'm more interested in administration so I can facilitate experiences in both my fields or all the fields that I might end up in that allow the world to be a better representation of the actual world when both the things that I've worked on in the past have a terrible history of complacency and white privilege and white supremacy. So thinking about how I can be an administrator to help amplify other voices and amplify other things that need to be looked at in both these things. So I'm finding that the creative energy that I'm trying to generate now is about how do I just serve others and facilitate opportunities for others because that's something that I've always cared about like how can I take care of the people around me and that's what's always led me towards positions of administration or supervision so now it's trying to find a way to be an administrator which helps find other administrators or something along those lines the idea of like how do I exist to promote other people kind of thing so I'm trying to like develop my own my whole own other world right now and I'm not quite sure what that's going to be yet but luckily I've been planning it for six months and trying to figure out how to integrate all of my worlds to be someone who creates experiences and opportunities for others. And that's what I'm like, primarily think I'm interested in. It's hard to, and especially if you're being pulled in so many different directions and you have so many different interests. Mm -hmm. And one thing that you mentioned to me too, which I thought was really interesting is that uh, you said that your wife, Tessa really helps you sometimes just to process and prioritize whatever it is that you might be passionate about or what might be a driving force for you to try to, I guess, keep you in one lane for a little while instead of jumping around to a bunch of different lanes? I mean, I think, yeah, because she, she's the person who has to deal with a lot of like the stream of consciousness. I think that kind of comes out of like, how do I 
how do I try to navigate all these like creative flows? And realistically, like it's she just kind of creates the moment, and she has always been the person to create the moment of like, how are you approaching this thing in a way that won't overwhelm others? Like, how can I be thoughtful and careful towards others? And I think that's again the huge lesson that a lot of people have to learn right now is how to how to listen and selectively use our voices and capabilities to speak to like a collective greater good or collective human future in many different fields and creative outlets. Yeah, her her job has always her her skill set in helping me has always been about like take the things that you were thinking about and think about how other people will hear them. And it's something that I think is really hard to always be self-aware of is trying to be your own third trying to be your own third eye your own extra set of ears so mm. it's how will this be perceived and what is my intention so the thing about intention is we are never accountable we cannot help we cannot hold others accountable for how they feel because of what our intention was so in what i'm trying to work on right now as a human being and just like how i you know whether it's trying to deal with this current um, pandemic situation and reintegrate into a work field. How do I make others feel by how I'm presented um, as a server or like as a hospitality professional? Like how do I make other people feel welcome or comfortable in a situation? And realizing that some of the things that we're doing might not necessarily make people feel comfortable and how do we adapt it regardless of our, regardless of our intention, how do we adapt it and self-reflect in order to better serve and facilitate good experiences for others. No, I, I like that. It's it's something that I think I I bounced off you as well, is that I feel like I very much have to grapple with the idea of being pulled in so many different directions and I, I lose my focus so quick. And I don't know if that's because I'm just not interested in what I'm trying to do and it's like I'm forcing myself through it or there's just something else that's catching my attention more at this time, right? And yeah. having somebody to help keep you in line and, and get you to ask those questions and try to, you know, reflect on yourself and your intention and realizing that, you, yeah, you really can't control other people's feelings, but maybe you can be creative in how you approach things or how you navigate the conversation based off who you're talking to, right? Yeah, I think it's important to have someone to remind you to forgive yourself because you won't always because you are going to make yeah. mistakes and you must learn from them in all facets of your life. You were going to create artistic or creative choices or any kind of choices which will be ill-perceived by others. And opposed to immediately defending yourself, it's about hearing why the other person may have reacted in such a way. And I think just to kind of go on what you said there about the idea of like creative flows pulling you in multiple different directions, I think it's also about having someone who reminds you that it's okay to let those things diversify. Um, mm one thing that I'm realizing is that sometimes you just need to pursue your curiosity for what brings you joy. And those things are allowed to change. Um, when I was in theater school, which is like, it can be an incredibly vulnerable and like toxic environment for a lot of like young people being told that this is your future and you're all going to fail. Um, is that there's a lot of shame generated around no longer being a conventional artist. Um, and I remember some of my teachers being like, you know, and some of you will be the best theater patrons ever. And they said it, but they said it with a tone of some of you are going to be successful and some of you are going to fail and you should be embarrassed by that. Even though that's not what they said, it was very much, I felt that there was this environment that like there was the, the artist is the greatest form of existence, even though we're always broke, but we're making our sacrifices to create art. And I was like, that's a load of shit. Like I'm just not <laughs> getting shame around the idea of choosing not to be an artist when like, realistically if you identify as a creative human being your creative curiosity will always be your primarily primary source of joy and sometimes you're going to find things that creatively satisfy you different whether that's pursuing conventional uh, theater and acting or whether it is the fact that i've like now worked towards becoming a creative bartender and also competitive bartender and my success as a competitive bartender has come from my theatrical past like there's no doubt the cocktails i make are fine but the theatrical presentations I can give to talk about my cocktails and give storytelling around them, storytelling around them has been that. So you will always be the same core creative energy in the world. You just may apply it in different things. And I think it's whether that is, like I said, theater or hospitality or something completely different. Um, 
I think like there's so many different creative outlets in so many different aspects of work that we need to redefine the idea of the conventional artist and the six and like the like from my experience the like elevation of the artist and realize the artistry of human life yeah and i really like that idea because i i even after you emailed us a lot of your thoughts on on what creativity is and what art looks like i looked up the definition of it just because i didn't actually know what the like actual textbook de definition of it was and it just says expressing or apply or the application of human creative skill and imagination appreciated for beauty and emotional power. So that's not really specifically anything that is performing arts, right? It could be a multiple things like with social media now, too, there's pictures of beautiful food that it's plated really nicely and cocktail drinks that are in really nice glasses and like that that is being promoted so much more now than it ever has been. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is what we what we need to focus on is not like people people will choose their information diet in the world very specifically and as people who provide that entertainment or information or experience or interaction diet it's this idea that like we we aren't in control we cannot guarantee how people feel but our job in most aspects of the world working in anything that interacts with human beings is that we are trying to make pe people feel a certain way and we will adapt we will adapt to do so as is necessary to fit the people so if we are in charge of creating the diet of people's social consumption then we must adapt in order to best serve those people in all capacities and i think that is the overarching goal of all of these creative outlets that I've kind of found. And I think the lots of creative extroverted people find is how do I, how am I trying to make people feel? How can I do it better? Going along with what you're saying now is being defined by your creative and curious energies in any work that you invest yourself in. Because yeah, like you said, a lot of people in general, you want to make people feel a certain way, but if you, if you're, um, if your approach isn't working, then maybe you need to switch that, right? Or, yeah. or, or depending on the job, like if you're acting or producing versus being in hospitality, you're giving people a different experience and giving them something to feel uh, differently in those types of jobs. Yeah, I, and I think, I think, again, this is like one of the reasons that I probably currently in my life for just my need for constant external validation have probably leaned more towards hospitality because the piece of theater won't satisfy everyone because you are making um, a series of artistic choices which you feel best reflect the story you're trying to tell. And my approach to storytelling as someone who primarily worked in classical theater was that it is all just a vehicle to watch human to watch human interaction. Um, I think there are so many plays that get done and get done in their most boring, unnecessary, repetitive way just because we're like, oh, well, let's go do this piece of theater and let's just do it because we're going to do a piece of theater. And people could really look at them as templates in order to watch human interaction. And when I was producing theater, that's what I was trying to do. Like I wasn't, I did two productions of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, which is like my, one of my favorite uh, plays of all time. But the way that I structured that play, it was only five actors playing all like 40 parts in the show. So when I was directing the show, it was all about, yes, I was interested in telling the story, but I was mostly interested in watching how certain people behave on stage together because it was more interesting for me to watch this person do this to this person and then create casting and artistic choices, which is like, I just want to watch that relationship in like 40 different ways <laughs> that I've been led towards hospitality is now I can adapt for every individual circumstance and try to like do the best with my skill set and with the things that are provided in the restaurant to create the experience that that person was there for. When in theater, some people are going to take things away that maybe were not your intention but also maybe that were your intention, they won't enjoy those things. And I think currently uh, I find it harder, I find it easier to stand up for the choices that I can make in a hospitality setting because they can be more adaptable to each individual moment opposed to theater, which is just creating a series of things which you think are appropriate for as much of your intention as possible, um, which I still think are very important. It's just currently in my life harder to work with because I find that I need something more fluent, I guess. So what do you think is the difference in your ability to adapt an experience in a restaurant setting compared to in a theater setting? Because 
as a hospitality professional as well, who's also been a bartender, when you're crafting something, depending on the type of volume restaurant you work in, I mean, you can make modifications and you can always do your best, but things are often still misinterpreted or not mm -hmm. misinterpreted, but not enjoyed the way that you anticipate. And I think the big difference that I would take away in hospitality is I can interact with my guest in that moment, but as yes. a theater professional as well, is there not creative ways or a source of curiosity that you could use to break down that fourth wall and find a way to satisfy your audience in different ways. And what might be some of your, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is why do you feel you have more control in a hospitality setting in terms of your impact and enjoyment of an experience compared to in a theatrical setting when there's still an ability to break that fourth wall and interact with your audience in a unique way that could still harness the, the piece for them. I think there's a different, I think the thing is that there is still a difference of intention in the mediums. Theater does, like, theater can have multiplicitous intentions. It could be for the sake of entertainment. Like, you know, people are still going to do a production of The Sound of Music, even though it might not be the most, like, internally, like, eternally satisfying or, like, politically charged piece of theater. I was always doing the best I can to make theater, which was interesting, but also challenging. So I think there is an inherent level of, like, the idea of let's create a restaurant where we're constantly challenging our guests might not be the most acceptable thing at this time. I think there's lots of restaurants that do that successfully, but I think the templates of both have similar structures. Like we're going to write a menu in the same way that we're going to write a script. And I think one thing that both mediums try to create is this idea of uh, managing expectations. So with theater, some of the best theater that can be made in the world is not made with having a huge budget and being able to create all the fancy like pyrotechnical special effects work that you can do. Some of the best theater in the world is made with two wooden chairs and a bed sheet mm -hmm. and that level of creativity. That's specifically a reference to Tempting Providence by Robert Chafe, directed by Jill Kiley, which is um, from Artistic Fraud of Newfoundland and one of the coolest pieces of theater to ever exist. When it comes to fine dining or casual fine dining, I think you're correct that one of the things is that we get to d address the situation immediately in the moment. Um, and some theater can do that. Some theater can very much, again, break that fourth wall, but not unless you already have accounted for it in the rehearsal process. The process and training process of fine dining, because it exists, there is a training and rehearsal process, gives us skill sets to uh, interact and de-escalate or accommodate, but also to be like, no, this is what this thing is. Um, when we can't always give people, we can't give... We, we don't have the ability to um, provide all the necessary dietary restrictions that people might come into for theater intake, right? Like we can, we, we should, and we should be very responsive about, uh, for, of course, like trigger warnings and when it comes to theater, like we, if we're dealing with very sensitive content, but we can't also go into such a world of um, basically like, here is exactly the write down of the show as much as possible. And here's why you might not enjoy it. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't really, it would kind of disarm theater in a certain way when I think theater does have a certain level of, um, ethical lethality, which might unwillingly transport people to certain places. Yeah, I think there is a difference in how we can manage expectations with how we generate theater. Um, but I think the, the thing that is definitely true is how then we deal with those conversations after the fact and how we can learn from our audiences in theater in the same way that we might learn from our guests and how we manage guests' expectations. That being said, I haven't been involved in theater as much lately. Um, so I haven't been actively producing theater in ways that lean on that but i'm currently in a point in my life where i really want to synergize these worlds as much as possible and be working on like i mean as someone who uh one of my favorite films of all time chef by john favreau probably one of the best pieces best pieces of media to look at like how a restaurant or like how a chef works and like those kind mm -hmm. of things john favreau took so much time and care in creating that film so that it was as authentic as possible and as someone who loves that level of detail and would love to put that level loves to put that level of detail into my bartending but also would want to put that level of detail into my artistic or like more conventional artistic pursuits i think it'd be very interesting interesting to create very authentic experiences where theater and hospitality sit on top of each other which is not just dinner theater where like a friend of mine here in halifax has talked about the idea of can we actually create a theater menu like so someone can come out and say like, oh i would actually i would i would love um you know, I would love a scene from, I would love this Shakespeare sonnet. Um, and I'll, yes, I'll take that and I'll also take a side of this. So people could come in and order their theatrical experience. And a very similar thing could happen that happens in the theater of dining where someone sees the really 
perfect green cocktail go across the floor and they're like, oh, I'll probably take that as well next. And just creating a world where the level of food and service and hospitality is existing in the same level of high-end theater and everything is being done to the highest of its degree. One of the things that I'm really grateful for is the restaurant that I'm working at right now very much believes in the, very much believes and creates a world of the theatricality of fine dining um, or casual fine dining. So everything is done to the best degree. It's not about being a place with the best food or with the best cocktails. It's about championing the people who are working in the restaurant so they create those best things. And I think theater can also do the same thing. So if we create an environment where we want everyone to be doing the best thing they do and we're bringing in people who are theater creators and high-end hospitality professionals, we probably could create this never-before-understood thing that allows conventional entertainment of both dining and theater to exist in a way where none, where neither is being sacrificed to the other. So I'd love to find out what that structure is in the future. So mm. here's an interesting thought for you. Are you familiar with immersive theater at all? Have you ever... Oh. Yeah. Um, I went to New York about a year and a half ago and I went to see, oh God, what was the name of the show now? Super popular. Frig, I don't remember. But anyways, it was an immersive theater experience in in New York City where they basically let you loose into a hotel. Oh, it's Sleep No More. That's what it's called. Sleep No More. Have you been? (laughs) My dream job. Anyway, so I went to that and it was, when you say combining the worlds of theater and you're combining restaurant experiences i think about an immersive theater experience in a restaurant where people come in to dine but the story is going on around you while you're having the dinner so you're like a character within the story like you would be in sleep no more almost where you just wander about this hotel and the story kind of evolves around you yeah like how can that exist without it being superficial and like tacky and just dinner theater (laughs) like i mean of course there is valid validity in dinner theater and it's been an important Honestly, in, in Newfoundland, people are disappointed if you don't give them a meal during theater. But this idea of creating something where like everything is allowed to exist in its highest form just to keep people engaged and be constantly developing. And I think the thing about Sleep No More is I know that those performers are trained to bring people through a different series of the experience, which is catered very much to the choices that the person makes. And I think there could be a level where then that exists within a fine dining structure. It's just Unfortunately, these two worlds exist in such small profit margins that bringing them together would be incredibly expensive and like prohibitively expensive for that. Because the other thing that I wrestle with is my interests in like high-end bartending and like very like detailed cocktail design is prohibitively expensive to the people I work with in theater and in some ways, vice versa, like people I work with in hospitality are also often working the nights where these theater events are happening, but then theater in order to, to be sustainable has to have a certain price. So the price tags are like mutually exclusive to groups that are not in those two fields. Cause I would love to be able to share some, so much of my passion and um, understanding of casual fine dining with my friends in theater, but the interests are in some ways exclusive. So mm-hmm. I think one of the things is, as someone who's interested in both, unfortunately, at some point, you're forced to make some kind of choice just so you can enjoy enjoy that world as much as possible. Because otherwise, if you're not in casual fine dining, you kind of can't really afford casual fine dining. If you're not in theater, you kind of can't really consume theater, with the exception of people who are coming from different walks of life who can. But it just does seem like there's... It's always really hard to make my friends from my restaurants come to see my plays. And it's always <laughs> really hard my friends from a play come to my restaurant because it just... Part of it is different priorities and different interests. So part of it is just they exist on such a similar wavelength that they actually just can't collide. Well, that's what I was going to say. Most, not most, but there is that cliche and that long time standing story of actors are servers. Yeah. Servers are performers. And <laughs> my experience personally is you serve because that's primarily at night. And if you're a film industry performer, most of the time you're auditioning is during the day. So the industries have overlapped for years and years and years and years. So you would like, in a way that yeah. cliche exists, but is there a way what you're, I think what you're saying is, is there a way to create a parallel across these two so that it's more accessible to everybody? Yeah. How can there be an industry night that crosses the, crosses the threshold? Like, Oh yes. If, if, and again, the thing is what, what's needed to do this is a space. 
And so much of what the requirement for these things to exist is a space that does put them together. I have like forever in my life dreamed of a multi-purpose art space, which also which serves as like a training institute because I think education is the pillar of both these industries, and especially right now where we're watching such very necessary demands for social justice, they have to come right back to a place of education. So we need to relearn these things and change the way that we learn these things so that we need to unlearn the ways that theater and casting and artistic production has been done that have been complacency, complacent in these structures of white supremacy. We need to unlearn the way that restaurant culture has been complacency in structures of white supremacy. And to do that, we need education. So creating a space which both allows us to train artists uh, and bring in trainers for artists and then create opportunities to promote artists that allows them to then showcase the work in the space and then does the same thing for hospitality where we're training hospitality professionals and we're training hospitality professionals for administrative positions so that we then create a more diversified soundboard for how we make decisions in both those places. And all it needs is a space. It's just, I need to find the people who can invest multi-million dollars in my idea. <laughs> but I don't even know how to ask yet. That's kind of the, that's kind of the problem. I need, uh, I need the people who are better at putting it down on paper than me. Yeah, well, I, I find the idea very interesting itself. And I think one of the big elements of creativity that I, that I heard somebody mention before is that you're just mixing two things together that already exist and putting it out in a new way, right? And yeah. there, there, there is a bit of overlap and Jenny is more inclined into the performing arts side of things than I am. Like I have an interest in it, but I, I haven't really seen a lot of plays or theater or anything. And I, I do want to, and I kind of regret not doing that when I was in Toronto because that was the best place to do it. But yeah, it's, it's just interesting because it can cross over into so many other worlds. Like there's a lot, I can't really think of an example right off the top of my head, but so many things are crossing over now and it's like two different fields are coming together in a, in a new different way and i think part of that is that there's there's a certain narrative or a bias that gets created about a certain industry or types of people and it's breaking that down and realizing like all i all i know is i know nothing like i need to kind of step back from what i think i know and look at everything with fresh eyes and see what other opportunities are available here yeah, I think, well, like one, I, I always refer to that idea as well, the idea that nothing new actually exists. It's just the way that we look at the things that have already existed and put them together. I like firmly believe in all things are the art of the surrealist. And then ultimately that actually ends up leading to all things are the art of the clown. Because the clown is about mm -hmm. the things in the doing the thing correctly in the way that we least expect it. Like if a clown comes out on stage in many, like a lot of traditional clown, the idea is the, how can the clown do the thing we know needs to happen, but in the way that will take the longest or be the most unconventional way. So if a clown comes out on stage and sees a piano and a piano stool, they will look at the piano stool and they'll look at the piano and they'll look at the audience. So that now that we know the clown has identified the problem. From there, we're like, okay, cool. The clown's gonna solve this problem, but how are they gonna do it? So we'll watch the clown deal with the stimulus of the audience being aware, the, the bench and the piano after about several minutes of us trying to figure out what the clown will do and them just kind of, maybe they'll start walking towards the piano and be like, oh wait, no, and then walk towards the bench and then, oh wait, no, checking in with the audience along the way. Eventually then the clown will move the piano to the bench. So it's <laughs> not the way we expect it. We've taken the things we recognize, bench has to get piano. And then maybe by the time the piano, the, the clown gets the piano moved over to the bench, they open the piano and there's actually no keys inside. Like that's just, it's, it's the inversion of expectations, but we recognize all the stimulus. Right. So the thing about as we look at these things, moving together and unifying and realizing that they've always probably existed. I mean, like dinner theater exists and I keep talking about it as if I'm like really just like shitting on it, but it exists <laughs> in a form that works. Maybe we just need to restructure the way that we um, restructure the way that we engage with it or restructure the way that we present it so that the biggest thing is everything has to get its proper level of presentation. The human mind, one thing that I learned from training as a dancer is like the human mind can only deal with three stim three stimulus at a time before it no longer is paying attention at all. So how can, you know, how can we make sure that if we're giving someone this, um, this like this dish or this cocktail or whatever in that moment that whatever is happening with the entertainment isn't overwhelming. But then maybe there's a moment where that goes away so the entertainment can come up. It's actually, it's, I just finished training as a sommelier for the first time. 
And one thing that people say is complexity in wine has to be has to defer from complexity in a dish. So if we're going to work at like pairing wine to food to a piece of theater, that's just another layer of complexity that we have to manage. Like all things need to be on the sliding scale of sliding scale of stimulus because we can't overstimulate people. Otherwise, they're not going to take in or enjoy everything in its correct moment. So it's mm -hmm. how do we how do we like create this immersive theater presentation that allows part of the experience to be taste and smaller visuals and just create like how do we create different snapshots and then create like a synergized unified experience. That's that's actually one thing that came to mind for me too is I was trying to like picturing it in my head like if I had my meal and my cocktail and there was a show going on. Like, would that be, you know, too much? It's like, oh, I missed that moment because I'm trying to eat something and then vice versa. Like, I'm not even tasting my food because I'm so caught up in the show or whatever it is, right? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of ground to figure out on that one. But also, I think there's one thing, like, this great whole thing could exist, but then also they can exist, still exist separately in ways that just are aware of each other. One of my favorite things that happened in a restaurant that I worked at is we had, we had a plate of food that came out and the plate landed you would announce, you know, you tell people like, all right, here's your chicken or whatever. And seven minutes later, a bowl of bread would land on the table as well. So just as you were like looking at the food and be like, oh man, there's all this sauce that I really wish I could deal with. As you were thinking that it was already showing up. And that was one of those moments of like, boom, theater and dining. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, just things that these worlds learn from each other. So it'd be interesting to see what's the next step. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit here and ask you for yourself, have you always been in this type of curiosity mindset of the way that you view things? Or was this something that you adapted over time and that you've started to be in that mindset more often recently later on in life? That's a really great question. I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've ever been self-aware enough to quite know. <laughs> and I think part of the lesson like currently in my life, as we talked about earlier, is just this level of self-awareness being like, oh, am I saying too much or not speaking on behalf of the things that are, are true? I think that there has been like an instinct towards creative pursuit throughout my entire life. And part of that has come from outside stimulus. Uh, my father has worked in many different jobs uh, as a teacher and entertainer and artist in different capacities. So there was always artistic stimulation in my life. But I think, yeah, I've always been, I've always led towards, I've always, I've always been interested in things that I don't find easy. And currently during this whole phase of lockdown and this whole phase of first like being locked down and realizing that I had the time to do all the things I want to do. And then moving into this phase where we're seeing a huge movement towards, again, social justice and realizing that we can't lean away from the things that make us uncomfortable I mean, that's, that's always kind of been something that I enjoy is leaning into the things that make me uncomfortable or I don't feel as good at. Like when I was in high school, my skill set was actually in mathematics. Like I did incredibly well dealing with those technical problem solvings. And as I've moved towards more creativity, those skills have still been in play of thinking things, thinking about things very technically, maybe sometimes to a fault. But there's more enjoy like you can teach someone so many things but you can't teach them to care so if that mm. level of care and that level of like work ethic and drive is there there's so many things that you can teach um which is why i look at a lot of these things like a vocation like i think not a lot i i mean i know when i was five years old apparently i wanted nothing more in the world than a toy barista station for my parents which definitely didn't exist i think there's there's still this level of vocation like you you realize that the only thing that you are desiring and will find fulfillment in doing might be a certain career path that can change from time to time like it has for me but i think there's this there's like a vocation towards working in theater because it's not necessarily that you're doing for money i don't think i don't know a lot of people who are like set up being like i am going to be a bartender for the rest of my life but you might find that at one point like that is the thing that you have felt compelled the most to do and feel like that is where you fit in the world and as i said earlier what i'm realizing is the jobs might not be exactly the thing that I need to use to define myself, but it might more so be like the archetype around the job. And I think people learning to define themselves by the archetype of what they do might be might help people like find a certain level of like comfort in the world, especially as right now we're all so stressed and everyone's so raw and everything is so emotional that if mm -hmm. we find 
archetype, we might find our best way to contribute to like, just like the symphony of the universe. Like how, how do I contribute? How do, how does my energy contribute like musically to this, this part of the world and what's going on in the world. And that's kind of how best to approach the learning we do to contribute to what's happening next is that I do this thing. Well, how can I do that thing to facilitate what is needed? Right. And maybe just for people who aren't completely sure, even myself, like I've heard archetype before, but what exactly is that? Or what is it defined as? Cool. The way that I, <laughs> I could not, like, oh yeah, right. The way that I look at archetype, uh, I'm coming at it from a theater training perspective. So that um, when we were studying theater, specifically through like the idea of like movement and physical movement, we looked at the idea of like archetypes being king archetype, queen archetype, joker archetype. And that was more so like how those archetypes applied to theater. Um, there's the archetype of like the parent, mother, father, um, parent in general. So I'm starting to analyze those things just existing in the way that people present themselves in the world. Like the owner of the restaurant that I work at, like his archetype and like his, his default energy in the world is generosity. Like I've never seen someone be able to give so much. So there is like an archetype of like pure mentorship. Like he's the archetype of like mentor or like, yeah, the, the creator of a pedagogy. Like that's kind of something that is like in his default archetype. So I think archetype is about a like recognizable, immediately recognizable, definable character, um, which can often be found like a character in pop culture, um, which allows us to like anchor a lot of things around it. Like to speak from my philosophy training, because before I started any of these pursuits, I was a philosophy student. Aristotle talks about the idea of the thing that without the thing ceases to be what it is. <laughs> so there's still that was I possibly can. I'm like, that's not even the best way to word it. But it's the idea that there is a quintessential thing in the being that makes the thing what it is. So in this case, there is uh, an energy or um, almost like a verb. Like there is a there is an action that something or someone takes that probably best defines who they are or their character. I think that makes more sense. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> uh, well, I'm just I'm just aiming to be quotable, man. I want to see something on a mug soon. <laughs> <laughs> we'll no, have to get great. you a mug. <sighs> Terrific. So I wanted to move over to, because you mentioned something about self-betterment. And I think that is something that really speaks to me and something that I've been thinking a lot about lately is... Like, yeah, willing to put put yourself in a position where you are uncomfortable, like you are new at it and it's something unfamiliar to you and just trying to recognize that, okay, this is a space where maybe I'm not super knowledgeable or skillful, but I can try to be and not making it about like, oh, that's that's not interesting to me or that, you know, I don't think it's something I would like, but just tasting it and, and trying new things and trying to look at different perspectives or approaching things from a different angle to see if it if it works or if it's something that really speaks to you. Cool. Okay. Sorry. Cool. When I really love a question. Cool. Um, <laughs> one thing I, I really wish that everyone in their life could do like a one day theater intensive, a one day actor training intensive, because I think some of the skills like I had a teacher who was one of the greatest mentors that I had and he especially as someone who like was fell in love with Shakespeare and using lang like the, the lethal use of language in Shakespeare is something that I love the most. Cause I just, I love words and I love how words can make people do things and feel things. So he said that um, when you study English, like if, if you're doing it, if you're doing a degree in English, it screws up the way that you read because you will always read a book through your lens of critical analysis. And you just can't do things for the enjoyment. When you study theater, it screws up your life. <laughs> <laughs> because you're in, the, you're in the idea of like, right? Like you're in this, you're in this process of like, I am critically anal analyzing every situation in my life. And for the first, like for my entire time in theater school and for several years after being in theater school, it felt like almost every interaction in my life was about trying to figure out what the other person wanted from me. Like the idea, cause in, in theater, you're like taking this idea of like, like, Oh, what is this other person trying to do? And what am I trying to do? And you're trying to figure out this idea of like intention. And um, one of the things we look at in theater is like playing from a place of rightness. Like you must assume that the choices that your character are making are always directly from a place of they like, they think that they are right. Even when they know that they're behaving incorrectly, they are in that mm. 
behaving from a place of rightness, um, which can be very dangerous in the real world. But I think the lesson that it teaches in theater is the idea of expectation. Like one of the teachers I had in theater school, I remember her saying that um, there's, she was playing a uh, character in some play. And the, the idea was she had to enter the scene and in that scene, she was given the piece of information that her husband wasn't coming home. Like they had either died or had left her or something. I just can't remember the exact play. So she went into that scene with the idea of thinking about like all of the gifts she'd ever received from her husband. So her expectation, what was going on in her, in her like, what was going on in her head was all this understanding of all the goodness of this person. So that when she received the information about that person no longer being part of their life, it was immediately would cause an emotional response that then she would have to process and work through as an actor. So what can benefit that from the average human experience, I think, is if you put in your best intention and like, if you if your intention is to display what you think you understand of something and you're, ex and you're expecting that you are correct in what you are doing or thinking, when you are proven incorrect, you are given a profound moment and opportunity to learn. And especially with what's happening in the world right now and where we're constantly re where we're learning to relearn on so many levels that as long as we are compassionate and ready to listen, if we set up our expectation, be like, this is why I think I understand something and I'm going to put it out there with as best of the educations we can provide and without asking the emotional labor from, labor from other people, because that is the most unfair thing we can do. But if we like, I think I understand something this way, when we are proven wrong, when we think we have acted from as much rightness as we were capable to muster, when we are proven wrong, we need to look at our emotional response to that and then use that emotional response and that place of unknowingness as an opportunity to seek out knowledge. And that's what really it is about like leaning into the uncomfortable and leaning into the thing that we don't want to do. Because part of it, like for me, sometimes the uncomfortable right now in my life has been like, oh, I've got to do another wine tasting. <laughs> like to make it a very small, like more innocent thing is like right now I'm like, oh God, I have to like, I have to assess this Australian Shiraz. And like, I'm like, why don't I want to do it? Like, why does it make me uncomfortable? And the thing that makes me uncomfortable is as much as I just spent like 60 hours of training, learning to know more about wine, I'm scared of being wrong about the thing that I thought I understood. Just thinking about wine, which like, one of my favorite people in the world has a quote that like, life is hard, wine shouldn't be, um, is that like, luckily it's an instant thing like wine, so it's okay for it to be wrong. It's okay for us to be wrong on so many things. It's not okay for our responses to being wrong to be wrong. Like our responses to things need to be from a place of acceptance being like, okay, maybe I was wrong and now how do I work to not be in the wrong and be more careful and caring towards others. So I think that answers that question. I think, again, my approach to it is this idea of how can the work, the careful and thoughtful work that artists are required to do, hopefully benefit people in understanding how to how to interact with other people from a place of compassion. Yeah, because there's a there's a lot of a problem with the conf like a confirmation bias, right? You want to you want to hear that what you already think is right. And then the reaction to finding out that you might be wrong is to maybe get a little defensive or to just ignore it or run away from it. But it's it's that moment where you're like, OK, now I can question myself and be like, if I am wrong, then like how how wrong am I? <laughs> yeah, and maybe this is a chance for me to to see it in a new light and try to understand it better than I did before. Yeah. And I think I think the biggest thing is right now learning that, like, we can do a lot of that work on our own. From what I'm learning, like I'm I'm currently trying to ingest as much information as I can about everything going on and as many like historical things in the world as possible. That being said, also being careful not to just do that for the sake of saying that I'm doing that and like actively doing it because we're challenging ourselves to find out how many ways we're wrong. Because like you you said it yourself, is the this idea of realizing like, but God, there's so many things I don't know. I'm like, wasn't that what like Socrates said? <laughs> like this idea of like acknowledging our ignorance is a starting point in realizing how much we can potentially learn. Don't quote me on that one because that's not quite proper Socrates. <laughs> I continue with philosophy because like that shit was hard. But there's just so much opportunity in realizing what we don't know, whether it's about approaching um, how we work on theater or something creative, how we how we interact with hospitality, because especially like work in hospitality right now, 
our guests, especially during this pandemic time, are going to have gotten a lot smarter than ever before and a lot more aware of how they're consuming things. So then how do we, you know, have that opportunity that if someone asks us about the bottle of Mezcal on our back bar, how do we then, you know, present them with information honestly and correctly? And how do we, if we're wrong, how do we approach that situation? And I think it's, it's just, there's so many little lessons in, from that I've gotten from my life of hospitality and from theater that'll hopefully help me just be a better person when I'm confronted with moments where I don't know the answer and don't know how to behave. So the amount of like most recently someone was like, what can you tell me about this absinthe? And I had no idea what to say. And I lied my way through it. And I keep <laughs> thinking about how uncomfortable that made me. And I'm like, Oh, I really don't like not knowing that. And then I immediately went and like, went and tried to learn as much about that one thing as I could do. So I think part of it in order to not be dangerous and not to hurt other people when it comes to like larger issues is how can we be a little bit more preventative? <laughs> like how can I have maybe known that thing beforehand so I don't end up in that uncomfortable situation for myself and did the uncomfortable thing beforehand? Okay. No, I, I like that. Uh, so Jenny, is there anything else that you have? on your end not really what i was gonna the only other thing i was gonna say is from that last little bit dylan the takeaway for me kind of came twofold so i agree with you in terms of prevention and like trying to troubleshoot those things up front but what i really took away and i'm wondering if what you were trying to get across is it really all comes down to being humble because we can't always be wrong even though our intentions might be a plus and we're setting out and we dot all our i's and cross all our t's and everything's prepped perfect we might not always know. It might not always go as it planned. And sometimes it's just about being like taking that moment to reflect and saying, no, I don't know that. And then going yeah. back and relearning so you can be better. Someone who is a lot smarter and a lot more mature than I am, uh, which is my younger brother, once <laughs> said something to me at, at the end of at the end of the first year of theater school. There's this awful thing that happens where lots of people get asked to leave the program because they're being told that they're not actors or they're not actors in the right program, which is the healthier way of looking at it. But at that point, there's a lot of anxiety floating around and being like, oh God, what if I'm not what these people want me to be? And the thing that my brother said to me is, hope for the best and what's best for you will happen. So if you are putting yourself into the world with the hopes that you are doing the best, when you are corrected or incorrect, what's best for you will happen because your intention was to put your best self forward and when you realize that the part of your best self was not helping others or serving others in the way that you intended, you are then given the opportunity to modify that to be an even better self. And I think that is the idea of the self-work, which will hopefully make everyone a more careful and compassionate human being. And that's like, at the end of the day, the thing that I believe the most in are humans. I will always say that I believe in people and people's immense capability for goodness, which may sometimes get lost in selfishness and may get lost in like the, the uncomfortable places. But I think at the end of the day, we have this incredible propensity to do good and to take care of other people. And I think as long as we realize that that is part of our capability and our development as human beings is the ability to do good, we can put that kind of hope in the world for what is best. And as a result, what is best will happen. So, we like, we like to end off by asking our guests to leave something as a insightful message to end off on. And I think what you just said there was also really, really good. But if there's anything else that you want to say, that's like a quick little sum up to, to leave everyone with. Okay. So if I could put, if I could put one quote on a billboard. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. I think that, I think it's, I mean, the most simple thing would probably be don't be a jerk. <laughs> right? I have a lot of friends who just kind of lean to that, like, don't be a jerk. Yeah. Uh, can it be that simple? Am I Can that be my coffee mug? Don't be a jerk. Um, yeah, I think that is that is the message that I would hope to leave people off on. And I think it's the, I think the most important thing is assessing that human beings are always just fighting to be in that place of rightness. And mm -hmm. that a lot of the times when people are challenged, that's when they will get emotional and defensive and there's a lot more that can be done when compassion is the default, but also acknowledging that, especially in the state of the world right now, passion is the most important thing. Having having your heart forward and having your personal heart forward might be the thing that helps save, might be the thing that saves us all. Is like if my heart, if I put my heart into the world, then 
all I can do is exist as as a caring human being who wants to take care of other people. Put your heart first. There you go. That's my billboard. Oh, it was so hard to get to. Put your heart first. Don't be a jerk and then put your heart forward. Yeah. I like it. Don't be a jerk. That's it. That's the t-shirt. Except the t-shirt will have heart on sleeve, written on the sleeve, and don't be a jerk across the chest. Perfect. Awesome. Great. Thank awesome. you. That was, my brain is done so much, has not done that much work in a long time. That's okay. Thanks so much for uh, sharing your brain and your thoughts with us and coming on the show and taking time out of your Sunday. I had nowhere else to be. It's perfect. <laughs> There's a pandemic. Thank you for having me come out and hang out and uh, spill my mental for a little bit. No, we're, we're great to uh, give Tessa a little break. Oh, thank God. She, is, she will need it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, buddy. It was really good to see you. And thanks for coming on. That sounds great. And see you. Cool. Yeah. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, everybody. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts on anything that was said here, feel free to reach out to us at our email, which is haveallittleinsight at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. You can send us a message there. We're just have a little insight. And on Instagram, we are Hallie Podcast. That's H-A-L-I Podcast. And if you go to our website, haveallittleinsight.com, we have all of the resources listed there in the show notes. If you are going to comment and you do have something to say, please think before you comment. Think of kindness. Use your heart and use your mind. And uh, yeah, we'd be happy to hear from you.